0: In March 2005, I found myself on a flight from Denver, Colorado to Anchorage, Alaska. It was my first time visiting the last frontier. I was going to Alaska to run in the National Snowshoe Racing Championships, but after the race, I had plans to visit the University of Alaska to meet with faculty and discuss enrollment in their atmospheric science program. When I explained my plans to an inquiring stewardess on the plane, she replied, Oh, you're going to be a scientist. Her comment caught me completely off guard. I'd never thought of myself as a scientist and nobody had ever called me that before. You see, my path to becoming a scientist was quite unconventional. After completing a four-year degree in geography with a focus on computerized mapping, I spent several years in North Africa and the Middle East doing cross-cultural work and studying linguistics. Later, I worked some unusual jobs like a six-month position on an assembly line at a chemical factory in Kentucky, and I worked as a snowboard instructor at a ski resort in upstate New York. At the time of this flight to Alaska, I was 30 years old and working as a baggage handler and customer service rep for a large airline. Nothing wrong with that, but it's not a path someone takes to become a scientist. So my path for professional work in the sciences had a lot of zigzags to it, but I learned that anything is possible if we persevere and don't give up on our dreams. My path to professional work in climate science took me to to live in places like Alaska, Colorado, and Louisiana over the next 10 years of my life. By the end of my 30s, I had successfully defended a doctorate in the field of climate science and had published several professional papers and even presented at an international conference in Germany. I love hearing the stories of other scientists who have found creative paths into the scientist. These people tend to be very multidimensional with varied interests and perspectives. They're really interesting conversationalists and always provide fascinating stories over a meal or a coffee meeting. At the EVAN 2022 conference in Orlando, Florida during May 2022, I met several scientists who found creative or unconventional paths into the sciences. I decided to conduct interviews with them so we could all be encouraged by their stories. I think you'll find them all very inspirational. But before we get to their stories, I wanted to ask you to please subscribe to our GeoTrek podcast. Your subscription helps GeoTrek stay on the air as it helps us mark professional progress and make partnerships moving forward. Now, let's get into these exciting interviews I conducted at the EVAN 2022 conference in Orlando, Florida. The first interview is with Sanka Dengendorf, an assistant professor in the Department of River Coastal Science and Engineering at Tulane University in New Orleans. Dr. Dengendorf has more than 12 years of experience researching mean and extreme sea levels, ocean tides, and storm surges and their impact on coastal flooding. Sanko, you mentioned growing up, you really had a passion for, for board sports, right? Um, skateboarding, all these different things. And um, really, you weren't as academic when you were younger, right?
1: No, absolutely not. So I was totally into skateboarding. I was working in a skate shop. I was organizing contests and all that stuff. And uh, that was my, my main focus. And that only changed at the university.
0: (laughs) So at the university then how did you get more into earth science and ocean science?
1: I did civil engineering because I was working as a bricklayer before um, and wanted to build houses but then I met my uh, supervisor who was doing that coastal stuff And I always liked everything about Earth and the environment. Uh, I just found it much more interesting than just building a house.
0: I think that's like inspirational because we have, you know, sometimes teenagers that will listen to this and just to hear, you know, you just were into skateboarding and all this stuff. You thought you might work more in construction and now here you are doing professional science work, like very, very important work to help our marine environment and our coastal environment. We're here at the Ivan. 2022 conference in Orlando. I'm with Sanka. Sanka, it's really nice to meet you again. We had met the first time in Siegen, Germany, I think, in 2013.
1: Yes, absolutely. Nice to meet you again.
0: (laughs) It's really nice to see you. I've kept in touch with you a little bit online. I've seen your work, and you've had a lot of transitions moving from Europe now into the States. You live in New Orleans, right?
1: Yes, absolutely. That's right. So I have been living my entire life uh, in the middle of Germany in a little mountain area. Uh, without natural hazards Um, so we haven't had any major storms and if there was a storm then maybe a few trees falling but nothing else and two year two and a half years ago we moved to Virginia where we moved to uh, a hotspot of of high tide flooding so minor coastal flooding and uh, yeah then a few months ago to New Orleans.
0: Let's talk about this work in Virginia when you talk about high tide flooding can you explain a little bit about that?
1: Uh, Yeah, high tide flooding, sometimes also called nuisance flooding or sunny day flooding, is the flooding that happens due to uh, rising sea levels. You increase the baseline of of sea levels and nowadays tides, uh, maybe high tide and, and a minor storm surge, can already induce coastal flooding, like a flooded street or something. And that disrupts our daily life. So it's a minor damage, but it disrupts our life and it becomes more and more an issue for many many places along the U.S. East Coast. One of the
0: hot spots for that is Norfolk, Virginia, right? Yes, Norfolk, Virginia. So, how much of this nuisance flooding or sunny day flooding are they seeing and what can they expect in the future?
1: So, over the last decade, I would say that they have seen like probably around 20. 10-20 days per year of flooding so that's quite a lot and it's increasing exponentially so uh, like in the 1950s we have maybe seen only one or two maybe three days annually and nowadays we see 20.
0: Wow so it's increased almost by a factor of 10 or something like that in a place like Norfolk and then what what can they expect into the future?
1: it will it will uh, exponentially increase in the next next decades and uh, i guess by probably depending on the sea level rise by the 2060s 2070s i would guess probably uh, they will have uh, permanently flooding at, in 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 some areas.
0: Well, I mean, we just saw your talk. It was amazing, even seeing some videos of people just driving through this deep water. But there's no storm. It's not raining. Uh, there's not a hurricane. It's just um, it's sunny weather, but there's flooding in the streets.
1: Yes, exactly. So it's it's and it's salt water. That's the most important thing. Many people. Uh, don't, uh, don't understand that so they, they think uh, okay there's a little bit of flooding but I have a big pickup truck or something and I can drive through and that may go well like 10 times maybe 20 times but very often it does not and, and maybe
0: there's hidden damage underneath, right? Yeah. All of a sudden, all the salt is underneath your vehicle, and if you don't get that washed off, I think it can destroy the vehicle.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And it also, it's also, it's all, also not only your car, but you you induce waves, and these waves induce erosion. Uh, there's debris in the water. So during the last king tide event last uh, fall, I counted just in front of my house probably five accidents. So within two hours around high tide. Wow, from people
0: driving through this debris, you can't see where you're going, and then they're they're making these waves or what we call sometimes wakes that are washing into other vehicles, washing into homes. Uh, it can cause a lot more damage than people think, right?
1: Yes, absolutely. And maybe maybe one doesn't see the impact immediately, but if you if the tree in front of your house or something erodes a little bit, then maybe during the next storm it can fall, and then you have the, these cascading events and impacts that you see. so uh, And then it becomes a serious impact.
0: And some trees, from what I understand, don't do very well in salt, right? So all of a sudden, maybe you're inundating these trees, their root systems are becoming weak. And then a, a weak storm knocks it over. Well, uh, something like this maybe could happen.
1: Abs- yeah. Absolutely, that's correct. Wow,
0: that's interesting. In your talk today, you mentioned that the Mid-Atlantic and the Southeast Atlantic is really a hot spot in the U.S. for seeing sunny day flooding, nuisance flooding. Why is that um, such uh, you know such a trend that we're seeing?
1: It is, uh, it is a combination, in particular in the Mid-Atlantic Bight. The Mid-Atlantic Bight sees a lot of subsidence, so the land is sinking. This is a natural process, not necessarily something related to climate change nowadays. And then we have, of course, climate change effects like thermal expansion of the ocean that explains these changes. I've
0: heard people say as well that perhaps the Gulf Stream current is changing in some characteristics, and that may increase some flooding in the southeastern U.S.,
1: Yes, that's absolutely true. So uh, this induces uh, flooding and it can slow down a little bit. And that leads to increases uh, in in sea levels that that happens on different timescales that can happen for a few years, but also in the long term. It can affect this phenomenon.
0: And then I know in the Gulf Coast, we have quite a bit of subsidence in places like upper Texas coast, south Louisiana. And that also is, I guess, getting into what we call relative sea level rise, right, where land is sinking and the water is rising.
1: Yes, that's absolutely true. We see in the Gulf of Mexico, in these places in Louisiana, in in, in Texas, we see just subsidence rates that are four times of the global mean sea level change that we have seen. So these are massive numbers. And uh, that brings in a lot of of issues for for people in that area.
0: Sanko, what was it like for you then to move to South Louisiana, right? So, I mean, this is a place that has a lot of flood history, a lot of hurricane history what was that like to make that move i know i think you had said your family back in europe was a little bit concerned
1: i mean what did that feel like Uh, definitely very mixed feelings on the one hand there's my my scientific me being in the bullseye uh, for research is absolutely exciting then there's also of course i mean new orleans it's home of music it's home of culture louisiana has so much culture it's so interesting all the food all the culture that we have there uh, that's very exciting but of course yeah I'm, I'm very feared I'm not used to these events and I have to learn how to prepare I'm talking a little, a lot about the science behind that but I think the experience is a totally different story and um, just living now for four or five months in this area I'm, I'm really impressed how well the people are prepared and uh, how they deal with these things
0: I moved to South Louisiana myself in 2008. I was there for about seven or eight years. And I saw, wow, these people have been through a lot of storms. They've endured a lot. And I, learned, I felt like I learned a lot from them, you know, um, even though in a way professionally I was a scientist. Uh, many of the people around me were not, but I was the one often learning lessons from them, you know.
1: Abs- absolutely. I fully, fully agree. I mean, you, we can look at our data, and that's an important part of it, of, of, of looking at it. But there's so much more happening and experiencing it. And I guess many of the stories that happen, we never, we never hear them because uh, they are not really shared. And, uh, but that's the really important stuff.
0: Sanka, a bit about your personal life. You said you like to surf, right? You had said maybe if a storm comes, you could leave Louisiana and go maybe somewhere else in the Gulf where there's some waves coming in. So have you been surfing for a long time?
1: I, I have been doing board sports my, my entire life, skateboarding, wakeboarding, all that stuff. Uh, I started surfing when I moved to the U.S. in Virginia Beach. You know,
0: the Gulf of Mexico is so low energy most of the year, but every now and then if a hurricane gets, you know, in the... And the periphery of it it can push some waves I wanted to get into surfing when I lived in Baton Rouge and there was uh, Hurricane Cristobal this might have been 2015 it was well off the Atlantic coast I drove through the night from Baton Rouge to Jacksonville to rent a surfboard and I was cool. like I'm just gonna I'm, I'm gonna learn how to surf man I just got <laughs> pounded I, I these waves were big they were like double overhead and yes. they were just crushing me I, I didn't really get the hang of it and I just got beat up but um, it was amazing to me um, the, the large swells that these hurricanes can push for like hundreds of miles beyond the storm you know
1: yeah it's absolutely fascinating i also saw pictures from last year from ida along the floribama coastline and it's absolutely amazing. You don't think that you're in the Gulf of Mexico. It's, it's massive. But it also shows the impacts, right? Yeah. And, you
0: know, I was kind of, uh, this was a light part of our conversation. I was joking a bit. But just a, a lesson I learned that blindsided me. I was 19, maybe 20 years old, 19 years old. I was living in Orlando, Florida for the summer. And there was a hurricane on the East Coast coming to Cocoa Beach. And my friends and I didn't know anything. We got these boogie boards and we went out. We were the only people out there. We thought we'll ride these waves in. I didn't know at the time anything about oceanography, and I was surprised that the waves were not as big as I expected. We got out there to ride some waves, and the way I would describe the ocean was just chaotic. There were waves coming from every different direction, but we didn't realize we were in some danger until there was a wave going out that was as big as all the waves coming in, and um, could have trapped us in the middle. We realized, wait, maybe this isn't a good (laughs) idea, you know. But um, I think sometimes in these storms, the waves can just be very chaotic, right? The the ocean and the
1: in these hurricanes and these. Big, uh, big storms. Yes, absolutely. It's, it's it, it, you shouldn't go out then. And I mean, surfing hurricane waves usually surfers go out uh, shortly before the before it makes landfall uh, or. The days afterwards, so that's where where the where the swell gets a little bit.
0: Yeah, and I think if it's at a distance, right, it's yes. pushing a little bit of energy. Yeah. But there, probably, people with more experience than you and I yeah. kind of know uh, when to go out and and when not to go out. Yeah. So you're you're at Tulane University now. What historic. what will be the focus of your research moving forward?
1: Tulane is doing an incredible, cool thing. They they are building up that new department river coastal science and engineering. Um, the issue is that all that flood risk stuff and uh, resilient stuff that the things that we need to prepare for the future includes a lot of different disciplines, a lot of different things, and we need to remove these boundaries between different disciplines. Mm -hmm. And that's the main idea behind that department. And it Mm -hmm. also includes the U.S. Corps of Engineers. So it's really something that we hope is really sustainable. Mm -hmm. So uh, we hope to develop frameworks with which we can sustainably live in that area for the next uh, decades.
0: Yeah, I think it's really important work and just again with the large subsidence in places like Louisiana and then some of these other climate factors that you found even in areas that are not subsiding just with these these other changes, I think it's important to watch out for. What's one last thing you'd like to share with people about this topic of sea level rise, about coastal hazards? Is there anything else that, that you'd like to share in, in conclusion with people? Anything in particular cities should be thinking about or planning
1: for? It? Uh, I think one of the the main things is, of course... Sea level rise, when we hear the numbers, they sometimes uh, seem to be small. When we talk about 10, 20 centimeters of global mean sea level rise or something. But we have to keep in mind that that means a lot of land loss and a lot of uh, flooding. And the impacts are much, much larger. And um, yeah, you're absolutely right. I'm coming from, from Germany. We live behind dikes. Uh, so we don't have that phenomenon of high tide flooding, for instance and um, it was new to me and i think many many people still don't believe that it's actually happening and uh, think that it has already happened before but it is happening and it disrupts our life and we can do easy things like we can close a road when we know that months before that it will flood on a on a certain day just try to make that little extra uh way around around these flood spots yeah
0: and maybe education in the flood zone like you know driving your car through this enough times will destroy your car or i've seen so many people walking i used to even walk through flood water and then someone that was a specialist in public health said if you have an open cut on your foot you get a terrible infection you could actually lose your foot you know from walking through contaminated water it's not usually clean water so uh, maybe we'll be needing more education on these things as we see more more sunny day or more nuisance flooding Sanka, appreciate you taking time. I wish you a good rest of your conference and uh, really nice to always connect. And I'm uh, selfishly glad that you're in the U.S. now because I can hopefully see you more than uh, when you were in Germany.
1: Thank you, Hal. It was an honor and I'm really looking forward uh, to uh, collaborating. Yeah. And uh, you're doing an extremely important work and I'm very, very thankful that you're doing that. Thank you, Sanka. appreciate yeah. it.
0: Thank you, Sanka, for such an insightful interview. You're doing such important work in the field of coastal flooding. I'm hoping that you do not experience any direct impacts of coastal floods in Louisiana this year. Louisiana has been hit particularly hard in recent hurricane seasons and really could use a break. Our next guest is Juao Morim, a scientist with background bridging climate, environment, and data science with strong emphasis on climate-driven offshore and coastal hazards. He is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Central Florida in Orlando. Dr. Moriam's work focuses on understanding historical and climate change driven coastal hazards, such as flooding driven by waves, sea level, and storm surges, as well as quantifying uncertainties to support adaptation planning. He also has a passion for surfing and diving and has done work as a scientific diver. Really interesting guy. We're so happy to have you on the podcast, Joao. Okay, here we are at the EVAN 2022 conference. We've met people from all over the world, and some of my favorite people here really get into extremes. And we have a a special guest here that you guys are
2: really going to enjoy. Could you please introduce yourself? Hi, guys. My name is João Marim, and I'm a climate scientist focusing on extreme wave events around the world. Thank you for having me.
0: Really enjoyed your presentation. You're originally from Portugal, right?
2: Originally from Portugal, lived 10 years in Australia, and now I'm in Florida uh, looking at extreme wave events. So uh, before we get into your travels and your research,
0: we were talking before, you said originally you never saw yourself uh, to be a scientist one day, but here you are as a scientist. How, How did that happen?
2: Good question. Uh, actually, when I was younger, I never thought about being a scientist. It was like a, a really, really strange career, I think. I, I thought it was inaccessible. Uh, I wanted to be a diver and other sort of dreams that I had. And then I actually took my bachelor in environmental engineering and then I ended up moving to Australia and doing my master's there.
0: So you moved from Portugal to Australia? To
2: Australia. I did my master's there. And after that, I got uh, offered to do a doctorate And that's how it started. And then I started doing, you know, extreme wave events and with people from scientists from around the world that now are good friends of mine. And yeah, I guess I'm a scientist now. (laughs) But it sounds like before you were doing professional science work,
0: you loved exploring and getting out on the ocean. Explain some of these things you grew up doing. Uh,
2: It sounds like you spent a lot of time on the water. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, I I I surf since uh, since I was uh, young, uh, since my teenage times, and uh, I also love to spearfish. And going to Australia, that even became a bigger part of my life. And so for me, that was always fascinating, but I never had a clue that I would actually end up doing research on the waves that I ride, so that's pretty cool. (laughs) So you get to Australia, I mean, people
0: come from around the world to dive in Australia, to go surfing, I mean, what was it like to spend time in the water there in
2: Australia? It was amazing, I mean, the water was pretty warm, that's a good thing, where I lived in Queensland, people were always kind to me, and to just, you know, I learned a lot from surfing there. And also understanding that people sometimes have different levels of awareness, even on extreme wave events, the way they see things because of La Niña and El Niños in the Pacific. In the in in Florida, it's more like a tropical cyclone consequence. So that's really interesting. So in Australia, did you get a lot of uh,
0: time of the year where you could surf? Were were the waves pretty big, or was there like a seasonality? Did it change with the season?
2: Definitely, like in winter, you get uh, bigger waves from the Southern Ocean. You you get to surf uh, consistently. In summer, a bit more quiet, still surf, but tamed. But once in a while... uh, a nasty tropical cyclone would come and everyone would be going crazy, especially because Australians are crazy. (laughs) That's right. And you get, I guess, January, February, March, you can get some tropical cyclones
0: come in there. That's right.
2: March, yeah, it's a big... What about diving? Uh, the Great Barrier Reef is right there. Did you spend some time diving in some of the reefs uh, around I Australia? I actually didn't go to the Great Barrier Reef, although I was spending a lot of time in an island called Strat- uh, North Stradbrook Island. And I had a lot of friends living there. It's actually a native island with Aboriginal people and sacred land, and I was actually spearfishing there with them, and uh, that was amazing. Obviously, aside from spear fishing, massive whales, some sharks... With spearfishing, will you always have oxygen with you or will some people spearfish without oxygen? Spearfish without oxygen. And to be honest, some of my mates, I mean, they would disappear for like four minutes. And I would be wondering, what the hell? I mean, uh, should I be worried? (laughs) So they were trained that well that they were in that good shape. They can go underwater for minutes. That's right. I mean, I would go for like two minutes max and these guys would be like getting like crayfish. Bringing crayfish after four minutes of uh, breath holds.
0: <laughs> Man, that, that's crazy adventures you guys had down there. And you also had some adventures going up towards Fiji and the South Pacific Islands, yeah?
2: Yes, I spent some time in Fiji, actually two times. The first time I went with a guy from Wollongong, good friend of mine. We surfed Cloud Break, which is a, it, a well-renowned wave. Scary as well. Ended up hitting the reef on the first day, so that was a bit scary, but very very lovely place very romantic uh surfing is very it's 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 pumping there and then i went back again for later on with some friends and i end up surfing again i had amazing experience and also i went spearfishing with the native people there at night and that was crazy because at one point my legs were cramping after like four hours of spear fishing. I had a, only a flashlight in my mouth. I had a rubber and a spear, which it was not even a gun. I had my fins, and I couldn't see one single light. And then I, and then I was wondering how I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to be sucked to the open open ocean. And suddenly, the wife of this nati- of of this Fijian guy Lasa, which is a f- friend of mine now, shows up in a canoe. In a canoe full of crayfish. And I'm like, okay.
0: <laughs> so they're fishing at night. They have a light source and that, that attracts the fish to them, yeah?
2: Uh, some t- it depends on the fish. But generally, you just have to see the fish in the water. They like to spearfish at night because the fish are sleeping. Oh, I see. You can sneak up on them. yes right. Fish. That's yeah. right. And then I look like I was in, uh, you know, the beach, the movie from Leonardo DiCaprio, because I got actually a big fish, and I got myself, I got a fish. It looked like exactly like that. And I was stoked. And ev- the next morning, everyone... Uh, on the community over there knew that i was the white boy they had caught a fish at <laughs> the night the news <laughs> traveled quickly huh <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> people got excited well oh uh, man that's so cool you had a lot
0: of amazing adventures there and then you've been able to like connect this in with your professional life now i mean you just gave amazing presentation on Thank really you. wave climatology and wave risk uh, for
2: coastlines around the world yes this uh, this research actually is gonna so We had looked at how extreme wave events are going to change in the future all around the world, and this impacts surfers, communities, uh, etc., underdeveloped and developed countries, and that study got published in Nature Climate Change, and that was like two years ago, and now we're actually showing that there is a lot of uncertainty in the present day as well, and that we need to... Consider that to actually have a better adaptation at the coastal level and even for offshore infrastructure, like wind farms and stuff like that. Is there a concern with places maybe with oil platforms or things, uh,
0: you know, industry on the coast, things like that, and the impacts that waves could have on them? That's
2: exactly right. So as, as you saw today, offshore oil and gas they are subject to these extreme waves and we really need uh, certainty to, to actually prevent natural disasters, extreme waves impacting these structures and, and, and actually could have devastating impacts. So that's what we are advocating, that we need better data, more data, and actually to consider all the data that we have and not just one source of data and go from there.
0: Is there a certain area of the world that concerns you the most? Maybe they're seeing increasing waves, or
2: maybe increasing development that's vulnerable to waves. Definitely, to me, and also I have part of my heart uh, always be there. The Pacific Islands and the Indian Islands, Indian Ocean Islands, they at at mean sea level, so they prone to flooding. Very hard flooding every every high tide, and one big swell can can be can be the last swell for their lives. I mean. They living on actually you know poor conditions by the beach, we, we're not even aware of that and and a storm of like five, six meters with the wave setup of one meter can actually devastate not just their houses but their uh, ways of surviving. so their, their natural water, freshwater, et cetera, et cetera. That's
0: right. If they're a low-lying, small island, a saltwater flood, that could destroy their drinking water supply, yeah? Yeah, and that's all they have. <laughs> yeah, that's a, a very vulnerable area, for sure, to the world. And I know another area of the world that really is close for you uh, in your heart is Portugal, right? I mean, you yes. still go back to see your family. You had mentioned, too, and I have to ask you, uh, the waves at, is it Nazar Nazare? Nazare? Yes. Nazare, it's really some of the biggest
2: consistent waves on the coastline anywhere in the world, right? Yes, I had any arguments with uh, Sean Virasek from United States Geological Survey and we always f- uh, fight like oh no the north pacific has the biggest waves and and then i say no the north atlantic has and now he's finally shifting to the north atlantic because nazare that place is magical and it consistently sends uh, giant storms just Travel towards that place, and the bathymetry just enhances the energy over there, and it's absolutely amazing once you go there. Yeah,
0: you know, if you do a web search or like a YouTube video search for big big wave surfing Portugal, you're going to see Nazaré, right? I mean, that's you, the place where
2: you see these crazy videos of people surfing 50 foot or 15 meter waves, right, or higher. Or higher, I think 20 to 30 meters sometimes. And the times that I was there. I I actually felt the and the, you you feel the earth shaking. It's it's scary and you you actually you have to respect the people that put themselves out there doing that because you I mean, feel very the small. Surfers,
0: <laughs> but they'll have people on jet skis, right? A people, lot of people. Yeah, uh,
2: yeah. Like and there is a guy. I think he, his name is Kalani. Uh, he was born in Hawaii, but he's Brazilian. And yeah. that guy body surfs, body surfs and paddles. To those waves.
0: I can't imagine that much strength to fight it and get through those waves. It's tremendous. And tremendous. It's something that uh, people can see online. It sounds like you've been there several times in person.
2: And Not surfing them, but observing but see them. them. Yeah, But in summer, uh, when it's small, it's also a perfect wave and it, that's surfable. But then in winter, that place just becomes a beast. Yeah, yeah, I, I appreciate your uh, perspective here. I think you, know, you love traveling, you love adventure, but then also
0: you've enabled to combine that with your professional life. And I hope some of our younger listeners, our teenagers. You know, if you're out there, even if you don't think of yourself maybe doing work in science, you have to do something for your profession. You know, it seems like science can be a great profession if you enjoy travel and learning and, and kind of what you've done here, I think, can be inspirational for a lot of our younger listeners.
2: And also, I totally agree with you, Hal. And uh, one thing is the network that you can do as a scientist. And also, you know, the world is full of opportunities and sometimes it's not you know is not like i i generally say if your path the path uh, in front of you is clear you are in someone else's path so you just meet people and you see how you go but being a i'm just a normal dude and like you guys were like you guys are and i think networking uh dedicating time to what you like can take you f- can take you very yeah, far for sure it's
0: a pleasure to meet you i'm so glad you got to come to the conference and i look forward to seeing you at the next ones i hope the rest of the conference is successful for you thank you and i appreciate you Thank you so much for that energetic interview, Juao. How fortunate to get to study waves professionally as a scientist with your personal interest in surfing, diving, and water sports. We're excited to follow your adventures around the world in the future. We close out now with an interview with two female scientists conducting graduate school research in the Department of Geography at the University of Florida. Caroline Huguenin is a PhD candidate studying climate in an area of northwestern Costa Rica where climate scenarios predict a decrease in precipitation and an increase in temperature, putting an extra stress on an already vulnerable system. Her interests are hydrology, remote sensing, climate change scenarios, and working with youth on water issues. We also have Samantha Timmers here. She's a master's degree student in the same department of geography at the University of Florida. Studying compound flooding from rain and storm surge, she has a strong interest in meteorology, and a bachelor's degree from the University of Louisville. We're here at the EVAN 2022 conference in Orlando, Florida. There's so many interesting people from different places doing different kinds of research. And uh, we're talking about really unusual paths that some people take through the sciences. I have two women here who both gave uh, great presentations and I think you have some unusual paths through the sciences, but you're doing amazing work. Could you please introduce yourself?
3: Yeah, so um, my name is Samantha Timmers. I am a second year master's student currently at the University of Florida. I'm in the Department of Geography and I study compound flooding uh, and hybrid modeling processes. Thank you,
4: Hal. Um, My name is Caroline Huguenin and I'm also in the Geography Department. I'm a PhD candidate I'm not going to say which year because it's embarrassing. And I study extreme precipitation and uh, drought.
0: Yeah, so you in both history. really um, study precipitation, flooding, things like that. I know you both are also have a cross-cultural background or, or inter- interest as well.
4: Uh, that's right. Uh, we were one of the things that we have like in common is like uh, traveling to other places and experiencing the culture and education in other places, uh, which has been very, very interesting yeah
3: yeah so like for me um I'm originally from Kentucky and I did my undergraduate degree there but I also did um a study abroad semester abroad in Växjö, Sweden and then ev- uh, eventually came down to Florida for my master's and have also done study abroad programs in like Italy and Poland as well uh, and so I think it's really important to get that experience and understand how people from different cultures and backgrounds think um and you know expand your work viewpoint in that way.
0: Yeah, Samantha, you said you were also interested in like Middle Eastern history and French and Arabic. It seems like linguistics are a big interest of yours as well, huh?
3: Yes, definitely. Yes. So I originally minored in French and then uh, once a friend of mine enrolled in Arabic and she was telling me about it, I actually switched over to Arabic because um, like we were talking a bit beforehand... Uh, I was just really fascinated with the history and the culture. It wasn't anything that I had really been taught before growing up in Kentucky. And so I thought it was just really fascinating. It was something that I had never really had any prior knowledge of, and it was just interesting to drop myself into that.
0: So I want to get both of your stories, get into uh, depth a little bit of your backgrounds. Samantha, to start with you, so when I hear of people interested in history and linguistics like French and Arabic, I think of people more like going into humanities, but like mm-hmm. here you are studying compound flooding and things that are quite mathematical as well, so it seems like you have a diverse background. So how does that broader viewpoint maybe help you in some ways? I mean, you've lived overseas, and you, you have an interest in you know, climate science, but also more than that. Does that help you see things from different angles, perhaps?
3: Yeah, definitely. And so it's hard to, like, fit my background into, like, one box because, like you said, I have that humanities background and I also study the sciences right now. Um, I think the advantage of that is being able to, like you said, experience how other people view and see the world. And I think a major issue right now that we see today is um, science communication to the public. You know, um, when we're in a conference setting like this, It's very easy for people to, you know, talk in very scientific dialogue, but when we're trying to explain hurricane dangers to the public, and when we're trying to explain exactly what they need to do to protect themselves, it can be hard to really translate that in a way that is effective um, as well as, um, you know, thorough enough for them to understand and properly prepare. And so I think being able to have um, a background like this, where it's very multidisciplinary, you're able to get the knowledge on communication in uh, order to properly explain these concepts
0: yeah samantha i'm glad you mentioned that i worked at the national snow and ice data center and my supervisor used to say science is not completed until it's accurately communicated right so you can do all the math and physics and statistics in the world even if that's accurate if you're not communicating that clearly what good does it do you know
3: exactly yeah that's what i've heard too you know if you can't explain it to anyone in the room then you don't understand it right
0: Yeah, thanks for sharing that. That's a really good perspective on why communications and humanities and how all this stuff ties together. Then, Caroline, you have a very diverse background as well, right? You lived Actually, you've done degree programs in several different countries as well. Let's walk through this. I think you started more with Costa Rica, right? Is Um, that right?
4: That's correct. So I grew up in Latin America, and then for uh, first years of college, well, no, first college, I went to the University of Costa Rica where I did um, civil engineering. So I'm an engineer. And then I kind of like rebelled. I was always way too curious, I would say, and too open um, to keep on that like track. So I decided to go pursue my master's in hydrology and water resource. And when I was looking for a place like, okay, who's the best in water? I was like, the Dutch. They're amazing. So I started like looking there in schools and and found uh, this amazing uh, institute. And I got the opportunity. I, I got a scholarship to go there. And um, it was the best eighteen month. So what
0: was ever. that like? I think you had said it was very international, right?
4: It was very international. That's correct. Because um, as we were discussing earlier, the program aims to give more tools to uh, people from developing countries. So they go back to um, their countries in uh, entire Africa, um, China, Indonesia, um, South America. And um, I think for me, more than what I learned as you know, like uh, the courses, uh, was learning about other cultures and how not only how they think and approach uh, problems and how they solve them, but also how they communicate and uh, that was for me the most enriching part of that program I've always thought of myself kind of like a mediator and trying kind of like to understand I'm, I'm, I'm very passionate about understanding behavior and why people do the things they do and why they think uh, how they think but I think it's more because of my innate curiosity of like Asking myself questions and trying to find the answers.
0: Yeah, um, and that's a big part in the physical sciences, but also in the social sciences, and, yeah. which I think both of you have a strong footing in both.
4: And, yeah, and I think that's that's how we both have like that big mix of interests is because of curiosity and, and, and trying to understand, like, oh... Yeah, One thing cannot happen without the other.
0: Caroline, then now you're studying here in Florida, right? And in the U.S. How is that transition coming from Europe to Florida? Well,
4: I, I have to be honest. I, I was a bit worried because of what you hear, like, you know, on papers and things and all the stereotypes there are. Jokingly, I said, like, oh, the only reference point I have from what is to live and study in um, North America is... TV series and movies and all these cheerleading movies. It's like, okay, is, is this like this? There are some things, you know, I, I went to my first football match and um, I felt like a, a, an extra in a movie. Uh, but other than that, I have to say, I think that here in America, you have more of a community uh, system. while in Europe, uh, the education, like PhD level, it's more individual and like you're on your own. You do your research. Well, here, uh, it's longer because you have to take uh, still courses. and But you are more, you know, like working in, I'm not saying that in Europe there's no labs, but you're more on your own uh, than in here.
0: Yeah, very interesting. Um, let's talk a little bit about the conference and then let's talk about what's next. So what was your, you know, biggest lesson learned or what you took really from this conference?
4: So for me, this is kind of like my first approach to the extreme community because the other conferences, there were, that have been there were more general what I was very surprised is that most of these extremes are very related to water floods droughts waves storm surge all these things and that that for me it's kind of like my main uh, takeaway like water and extremes are so related
0: Yeah, they definitely are. Um, We see a lot of presentations about flooding. Someone actually asked a few nights ago, why don't we see more presentations on earthquakes, volcanoes? It's a good question. But yeah, a lot of focus on flooding, I think, you know,
4: I think maybe well, because earthquakes, they're hard to predict. So it would be hard to try to model. More. Where
0: we, we think of precipitation. I mean, you can get precipitation many days without a flood. Earthquakes, mm-hmm. it's at least not detectable by humans for a long, long time. And That's then correct. suddenly the ground shaking. Yeah. What about you, Samantha?
3: Yeah, I think for me, my main takeaway from this conference is has been, um, you know, I think you mentioned before, this is an international conference. You have many members of the international community here. And so for me, it's really interesting to take these extreme value methods, because a lot of them kind of are very similar, like we mentioned before, a lot of them relate to water and flooding and how to, you know, kind of exactly forecast that. But it's interesting for me to think about, okay, what if we take, sorry, there's a plane, sorry. What if we take this same method and we apply it to different regions how do our results impacted from that what are the policy implications of that and so a lot of these talks have been very theoretical but it's interesting to think about you know in that kind of policy mindset
0: yeah and you're right hopefully the knowledge we're learning from one country we can apply it to another or to another region Mm -hmm. as well um no for sure that's great what's next for both of you as far as professionally i mean what are you hoping to do next down the road
3: So hopefully um, I'll be graduating soon. Uh, I'm wrapping up my thesis right now, and I'm hopefully about to defend it in a month. After that, I would definitely love to get more into meteorology. I've been applying for some meteorologist positions. I would love to do something involving field work or just, uh, again, kind of bridging that gap between science and communication and helping everyone understand, you know, what are the dangers of climate change? What's next uh, for the next 50 years or so? You know, what are the most prevalent hazards today and how can we prepare against those yeah
0: thank you caroline
4: that's a very good question how i love research i love teaching so academia fits well for me well first i have to graduate and finish my phd which hopefully will happen by the end of the year and after that it's hard i i so I've, I've worked in construction, I've worked for, uh, alongside government institutions, I've worked in academia. I like aspects of each of those things. Um, I think I would definitely go more towards things that involve community and uh, solving problems for the community. I'm very passionate about that.
0: I want to ask one last question. What advice would you have for, say, teenagers out there, especially, say, like females that you know um, maybe the sciences are just more opening up to them now? What advice would you give for them as far as career or you know looking, thinking of their options of what to do? I mean, when you think of yourself as a teenager, did you sometimes have questions like, you know, what am I going to do with my life? Uh, (laughs) Any any piece of advice for our younger listeners?
4: Um, Not only the go for it, but also never ever ever make a decision out of fear like oh i'm afraid i'm gonna fail i'm afraid this is not gonna work if fear is there don't listen to it do the opposite
0: that's a great piece of advice
4: yeah
3: for me i think if i had to give advice to like my former self as a teenager i would say if there's a will there's a way you know and take any experience you have and use it for the future like I guarantee you no matter how many wacky positions you've been in or say you have a background that you're trying to switch into something completely different I guarantee you there's something you can take away from that and contribute towards your next step and so like I, like I had a fairly involved humanities background and even in high school like I was involved in a like a lot of English and history-related things, a lot of theater, but there's still a lot that I learned from that that I took with me into the scientific and mathematical community. It was just a bit of a different path than most people take, but I think that's really valuable in the end.
0: Yeah, that's a great perspective. I know a lot of us have had zigzags. Even for me, I was telling both of you, you know, at one point I was living in Kentucky, working on an assembly line. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think sometimes there's a fear like we have to have it all figured out by the time we're 21, and we're like locked into this this path. You know, and you can zigzag, and like you said. I still use some things I learned on the factory floor, you know, like they would shut down a little bit early every Friday and clean and organize. Sometimes I do that just professionally on Friday. I'll close up a little bit early and clean my desk area. And I thought I'm using something I learned in a factory in Kentucky. Right. So like you said, you can take a piece of knowledge or insight from any any of these paths you take and use it. Mm -hmm. The the road is, I think, open for a lot of our young people. And they shouldn't have fear that, like they're going to make the wrong choice and mess up their lives. Right. From Mm -hmm a bad decision or something like that.
3: Yeah, definitely. I think everyone, I think everyone has a moment where they look back and think of like just how crazy a journey they've taken and they never would have expected that. But you know, I think looking back now, like those steps that I took made sense.
4: It's just, I never expected that at the time. So.
0: Yeah. When you look back, you can see the, the <laughs> zigzag. same.
4: I, I never in my plans was like, Oh, I'm going to go and live in the U S and study there. It was not on my plans. And here I am now. Um, but yeah, I think uh, trying new, try new things, even if they're not like on your field, that helps. And you will use those skills in many, many things that you maybe don't realize just yet.
0: Yeah, sometimes you can't realize until you get there in the future. Well, exactly. Caroline and Samantha, thank you so much for taking time to come on the GeoTruck podcast. I hope the rest of the conference is great for you, and best luck in the future. Thank I'm you sure so you're both going time. to be really successful, and I can't wait to see uh, what happens for you both in the future.
4: Of course. Thank you so much. Bye.
0: Wow, what inspirational perspectives from our guests on the GeoTrek podcast today. I love what Caroline Huguenin shared about not making decisions out of fear. Her courage is so evident as she's completing her third degree on three different continents. We're really excited to see what's next for you, Caroline. Samantha Timmers shared some crucial insights with us about the importance of clear communication with the public in the sciences. This is particularly important for natural hazards like floods. The best computer analysis in the world do us no good if we're not communicating disaster risk clearly. There's so much work to be done in this area, and we're excited to follow you in the future as well, Samantha. At the EVEN conference, Juao Morim gave an exciting uh, presentation about wave climatology around the world. Given the population explosion along the coast and the importance of coastal industry and shipping, his work will be vital in the years to come. We look forward to following him professionally and I personally hope to get out there on the water with you, Joao, and do some diving and surfing together. The work that Sanka Dangendorf is doing on compound flooding and sea level rise impacts will unfortunately become more critical in the upcoming years as sea level rise accelerates and portions of our coastline, like South Louisiana, rapidly subside or sink Sanka you're right in the heart of the hazard right there in New Orleans we look forward to following your research in the future and when the Saints make it back to the playoffs I'm coming down to New Orleans and we'll have to grab a beignet together in the French Quarter these four scientists took creative paths into the sciences Sanka was passionate about skateboarding and was working as a bricklayer with a plan to go into construction until he got into the University and was exposed to earth and ocean science Joao had a long-term passion for diving and surfing. surfing, and then eventually was able to connect those personal interests into a professional life related to the study of waves and coastal flooding. Along the way, he's had a lot of adventures on the water in Portugal, Australia, the the South Pacific Islands, and the United States. Caroline showed so much boldness by thinking big and expanding her world beyond her native Costa Rica. Her curiosity led her to reach out to water experts in the Netherlands, where she moved to do a master's degree, and then eventually to the US, where she's studying climate from Florida. Samantha has a passion for meteorology, but also interest in cross-cultural experiences and linguistics. She studied abroad in Sweden and views such experiences as important for expanding her world view and making her a better science communicator all four of these stories are so inspirational one of the take-home messages for our young adults and teenagers out there is that the world is big and full of fascinating adventures stay curious keep learning don't be afraid to travel explore and study new topics so many people feel like they need to have everything figured out by the time they go into college or when they graduate from college and in reality you're still so young at that point View lifelong exploration and discovery as you know all these different paths that are open to you in the future. As Samantha shared, you can take something from every experience you have. So even if you're working in a field you do not like right now, or you're unsure about the degree program you're in, try to take what you can from your current situation and keep your eyes open for future opportunities. Again, a lot of these paths open up to people throughout their 20s and even 30s. Um, You you have a lot of opportunities ahead of you, and don't, don't view a degree as something that's going to limit you or keep you in a box. All these things are stepping stones and some of the people really doing great work in science have a lot of different backgrounds and experiences. So really keep an open mind when you think about your future. Finally, a huge thank you to our faithful listeners. We felt so much support and uh, just um, encouragement from you through these first 30 or so podcasts that we've done, it gives us a lot of inspiration to keep developing these exciting podcasts. On behalf of the GeoTrek production team, this is Dr. Hal signing off. Until the next episode of the GeoTrek podcast, we have a few more guests that were at the event conference that are gonna share some really interesting perspectives with us. Everyone have a great day and thanks for listening. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Hal. Thank you so much for listening to the GeoTrek podcast. If you're wondering how we come up with such interesting topics each week, we rely on an amazing global community to help direct our scientific fieldwork, articles, and podcasts. If you have an idea for a topic or can connect us to an outstanding future podcast guest, please reach out to us on our website at geo-trek.com or on our Facebook group called GeoTrek the Community. On behalf of our GeoTrek production team, this is Dr. Hal. I'll catch you on the next episode of the GeoTrek podcast.